thankful for the verse that Cole quoted from Philippians. You notice that Paul talks about his confidence. And today in our passage, we're going to see that Paul uses that word again, that he's confident of what the Lord is doing. And you, you really see that mindset from Paul throughout the New Testament. There, there's a confidence in Christ. There's a confidence in his God. You don't find a lot of language from Paul that he's unsure or unsteady or uncertain. He has a lot of certainty, but his certainty is not in the way the stock market's going to go or whether he's going to get that gift that he wanted for Christmas or anything like that. His certainty is based in Christ. And church, that should be true for us. And in a world that's looking for certainty, in places where there is no certainty, because there's, there's no certainty in your relationships. I mean, we see families fall apart. There's no certainty in your bank account. We see people file bankruptcy. Right? There's no certainty in these places that we can, but there's certainty in Christ. Let's be a people certain in Christ. Let's be certain about the things that we can be certain about. And let's proclaim that. Let's live in that certainty to the world. Before we begin our time in the Word, I'd like to pray over uh, just our congregation. There is a lot of uncertainty in the world right now. Uh, We've seen a rise in COVID cases, blame it on new variants or, or anything else. And um, so you may know, I know several people, several families that are sick right now, uh, whether it's that or something else. And just for every other reason, I know people who are suffering and hurting. And I, I think it's appropriate that, that maybe we, we spend the first part of our time together today just praying for God's peace. I mean, we just came through this season where the Prince of Peace arrives and that is something unique in the Christian life, is the peace of Christ. So why don't we pray for that peace, that supernatural, only Christ, only, only those who are in Christ and indwelled by Christ can have that type of peace. Why don't we pray for that for each other and pray that those who are far from Christ might draw near to him, that he might save them and, and know that peace. Would you join me in, in praying for that? Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus, that we can be a people who are certain of our salvation, that we can be confident in our eternity because we trust you, because you are trustworthy, you are faithful, you are good. Father, you are, you are lovely, and it makes it easy to talk to you. It makes it easy to come to you and ask you for things because you are easy to love and you love so well. So God, we we come to you this morning asking for peace. In a world that is just thrown into chaos, we ask for your peace. We ask that in this time, your people would do the work that you've called them to and that you would go before us, that people might know you, that people might be saved that the eternal confusion and chaos of sin and death might be ended in the death and resurrection of Christ. God, we pray that for the friends and family, the co-workers, the acquaintances, the neighbors of those in this room, those watching online. God, we, we pray for the peace and comfort that you give in the face of suffering and loss, in in the face of hurting and uncertainty to us, God. Help your people to know and love you and to know your nearness, to know your presence, to dwell with you, God, that we don't ignore or reject pain, but that we feel it overwhelmed in your presence. I thank you for the cross. Thank you for the empty grave. Thank you for the church that you have built and are building. 
We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. God wants you to be obedient. Like a good father, he desires your obedience. If you want to honor God and be righteous, what do you do? You obey. We can, we can try to overthink that, but it's really a simple thing. Obey God and you will be righteous. But we're, we're bad. We're bad at obeying God. It's just not a skill that we're born into being very good at. We'd rather obey ourselves and the voice of the enemy than the voice of God. And God doesn't just let that slide because he's just, because he's zealous for his glory. He gives consequence against sin. He gives consequence against disobedience, which is really what sin is. Sin is disobedience against God. In in my personal Bible reading this week, I was reading in the book of Numbers. And I want you to turn there with me uh, in the connection to today's passage in Galatians. Numbers 25, if you've got your Bibles. It's near the beginning. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And it's a few verses here. It's a little bit of a passage. We don't normally do this together where we just read a a little bit of a passage together, but it flows really easily. It's one that you may or not be aware of, and it's, it's just convincing for how God cares about his glory and the obedience of his people. So I'm going to read this to you from the New Living Translation. It's a little more, I don't know, family-friendly. These verses are a little difficult to be family-friendly, but it encapsulates this so well. So look at Numbers 25. Look, at, look with me in verse 1. While the Israelites were camped at Acacia Grove, some of the men defiled themselves by having sexual relations with local Moabite women. Now, this is when the Israelites were still wandering through the wilderness. They still hadn't entered the promised land yet. So they were interacting with other nations. And so here, here they are interacting with the Moabite women. And verse 2 says, These women invited them to attend sacrifices to their gods. So the Israelites feasted with them and worshipped the gods of Moab. You see all the disobedience. I mean, there's just a lot of disobedience already in this. In this way, verse 3, Israel joined in the worship of Baal of Peor, causing the Lord's anger to blaze against his people. Why is his anger blazing? Because he doesn't share his glory with others. He doesn't share his worship with others. Look at verse 4. The Lord issued the following command to Moses. Seize all the ringleaders and execute them before the Lord in broad daylight. So his fierce anger will turn away from the people of Israel. Don't do this where it's not seen. Don't do this in the nighttime. Do it in the daylight where the nation will see how seriously I take disobedience. Do it in the broad daylight. So Moses ordered, verse 5, Moses ordered Israel's judges Each of you must put to death the men under your authority who have joined in worshiping Baal of Peor. Just then, one of the Israelite men brought a Midianite woman into his tent right before the eyes of Moses and all the people. I mean, this is just flagrant fouls. I mean, it's like, how how do you think you could be getting away? Why would you do this? Maybe he didn't understand that some of this was happening, that God was already doing some of the vengeance and anger, and he thought, I'm just doing what everybody else is doing but just flagrantly bringing this woman into his tent, adultery. He did it as everyone was weeping at the entrance of the tabernacle. Verse 7, When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, and grandson of Aaron the priest saw this, he jumped up and left the assembly. He took a spear and rushed after the man into his tent, Phineas thrust the spear all the way through the man's body and into the woman's stomach. So the plague against the Israelites was stopped. But not before 24,000 people had died. Then the Lord said to Moses, Phineas, son of Eleazar and grandson of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites by being as zealous among them as I was. So I stopped destroying all Israel 
as I had intended to do in my zealous anger. I love Phineas. He jumped up. He saw what was happening. He saw the dishonor, the disobedience. He, he saw what was being done to the people of Israel, what was being done in the face of God. He jumped up, it says, and left the assembly. He took a spear and rushed after the man into his tent. Phineas thrust the spear. I mean, this was a man of action. He didn't wait back and just say, well, God will take care of it. He said, I care about God's glory too. Such a compelling story. And I would say, before I even go further with this, there's a lot to copy there with Phineas. I wouldn't copy thrusting spears through people. That's not like a New Year's resolution for you. I think that's, you know, we're saving that for for this specific case. Uh, There are better ways. I don't want there to be new stories breaking out. That there's several mass murderers coming out of Provision Church uh, because the pastor is preaching about Phineas. No, that's not the takeaway here. The takeaway here is the zeal for God's glory. It's a compelling story because the people disobeyed God in several ways. And he called them to repentance in the midst of punishment, right? Like they're at the tabernacle weeping and he's still punishing them. And it was the zeal of a man for God's glory that alleviated the consequence. Phineas got it. Where everyone was just weeping and saying, God, we're sorry. Phineas got it. He wasn't just sorry that punishment was happening. He was sorry that God's glory wasn't being represented. That God's glory wasn't being honored and revered. The people were more concerned about themselves than God's glory. Not Phineas. He acted out of reverence for God's glory and majesty, for God's holiness. This is the heart of obedience. The heart of obedience is seeing and desiring and loving God's glory. We're not obedient because we fear punishment. We're obedient because we are amazed at the splendor of our King. No matter what people around you are doing, no matter what the people around Phineas were doing, we, like him, are laser-focused on the treasure of the glory of God. That's the heart of obedience. The Galatians had lost their focus on the glory of God. Their eyes began to drift downward onto their own ability and strength. Maybe they needed to contribute some law following to their salvation. Maybe Jesus isn't good and powerful and strong enough to save me without my help. Maybe I do need to follow some rules and laws to be saved. Maybe, maybe they did need to impress God with their work to be saved. You can see how their eyes are drifting down off of the goodness and glory and kindness of God and onto their power and strength and necessity of their doing. That's what the false teachers were bringing into the congregation in Galatia. The whole letter of Galatians is one long confrontation over this false teaching in the church. So today we're in chapter 5, verse 7. So flip back over to the New Testament into Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. Before we read in verse 7. We've only got a few more weeks left in Galatians. So we'll we'll finish up Galatians here in the new year. And um, I've really enjoyed Galatians. I hope you have. So I want to encourage you. Be a part of these last few sermons. Um, We've got chapter 5 and then chapter 6. So we're we're very close. Here's the main idea for today. Here's the main idea from this text. Verses 7 through 12. Is the truth of the gospel is worth the perseverance and the persecution. The truth of the gospel is is worth the perseverance and the persecution. So we see there's really three parts of this. The truth of the gospel, which is beautiful and wonderful, life-saving, eternity-giving, eternal life-giving. And then that is going to take perseverance. To, to follow Christ in the beauty of his gospel is going to take perseverance. It's going to take endurance. And it will also bring persecution. But it's worth it. 
It's worthy of the effort and difficulties of our lives. So here's what Paul tells the Galatians in in verse 7. Chapter 5, verse 7. You were running well. (laughs) Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So here in chapter 5, we're picking up in verse 7. There's already been six verses in chapter 5. It's a letter. When it was written, they didn't have chapters and verses. So we're we're breaking it up somewhat to to fit the themes of of the text. But here he's just coming out of this call to freedom. Like, hey, you're free. Be free in Christ. And now he's saying, look, you, you were running well. When I was with you, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Today in, in this passage, as we get through verse 12, I'm going to give you three O words. So if you, if you can like think back and remember, oh, that's what the text was about. The, the first one is obedience. That's what we're going to see here first, obedience. In verse 7 is obedience. We're going to see others and offense as well. But here we're starting with obedience. Paul points them back to obedience. In verse 7, Paul is telling the Galatians that running well means being obedient. God God uses the picture of running to describe how we live the Christian life several times in the New Testament. We We can find it in Hebrews 12. We can find it in 1 Corinthians 9. We can actually even find it a few chapters back in Galatians in chapter 2. And it's a good description. Running as a part, as a image of the Christian life is a good description. And I think it's partly why it's good is that not many of you enjoy running. <laughs> you, you might be able to find, you might have been a person who's posted memes about like not enjoying running. But in the Christian life, we don't normally get into it on our own. And in fact, in the Christian life, we don't get into it on our own. Right? We're, we're called by grace through faith. It's by grace that we're even, that the beauty of the gospel is revealed to us. So it's, it's a little bit like that in, in just the goodness of how God brings us into it. But it's also like that in that running is something that after the first three or four steps, you're like, okay, walking would be better, <laughs> right? Like to keep running, it takes endurance. It takes perseverance. It takes not giving up. It takes hitting a wall and saying, but it's worth it to keep going. If you're running, you have a purpose in running. Some of you are, may, have had a, may have made New Year's goals to get in shape and maybe exercising as a part of that. A lot of times when I go running, I'm, I'm aiming to lose weight. I'm not going for speed. If I was, I would lose every race. I'm out there running for just losing weight, being healthy. But I know guys who run, and they think it's fun to run. And it's like, how did you get there? How did you get to the point where it's like, that's, a, that's just enjoyable. I just go run for fun. I just, it doesn't make sense to me. But... It's a, another reason this is a good description, because at some point, if you start for weight loss, that's, that's a great way, reason to start. But even for me, as someone who's done it for weight loss, it becomes enjoyable. You start developing a habit. You start enjoying the rhythms. You start enjoying the hurt and the, and the movement and, and your habits and your routines. They're just things that become enjoyable about running itself. And there are things about the Christian life where you wouldn't have predicted when you were far from Christ, but now that you're in the life following Christ, you realize how beautiful God's designs are. So you enjoy running the race for the sake of the one you're running the race for. You, you realize here's the purpose. The purpose is Christ. The purpose of running is Christ. And so you keep running. You keep going towards that goal. He says you were living in Christ well, you were running well, you were persevering well. And how do we know this? How do we know you were running well? Well, because of your obedience. The evidence of running well is obedience. Obedience is the natural state of the Christian life. Obedience is the natural state of the Christian life. Where the natural state of the life in the flesh is sin and death. Obedience in Christ, this life in Christ, the natural state is obedience. And we see that from Jesus. He says it in John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. We see it in the letter John wrote in 1 John chapter 2. He says, and by this, by this we know that we have come to know him. So what is the evidence of the Christian life? If we keep his commandments, it's obedience. Here Paul is creating then... I, a healthy tension. And really over and over 
in this letter, Paul is doing this. But the, the main, one of the main thrusts of Galatians is freedom in Christ. You are saved by faith. It is not by works. You are saved by faith. But here he comes back and he's saying in verse 7, look, who has hindered you from obeying the truth? There, here, here's obedience. Well, if, we're, if it's all about faith, if it's all about what Christ has done for us, then what does my obedience matter? Well, that's a healthy tension in the, in the Christian life. That, yes, you are saved by faith, but then you are saved to follow after him. In faith, to follow after him, to obey, to enjoy being his son, his daughter. We are saved by faith alone, not by works. But here Paul is making a gentle nudge back towards obedience Obedience isn't just in an action either, is a message of verse 7. Not only are we called to act in obedience, we're called to believe in obedience. It's a belief like Phineas. The action that Phineas went through to follow after and be zealous for God started with the belief that the glory of God was worth it. He acted on the, he believed rightly. God desires that we believe what he tells us to believe. Here's a truth for you. Disbelief is disobedience. Disbelief is disobedience. And one step further, false belief is disobedience. False belief is disobedience. So if, if I say, I don't believe there is a God... Well, that unbelief, that disbelief is disobedience. If I say, I believe there are many gods, that's a false belief, right? That's, that's a wrong belief. And that wrong belief is, again, disobedience. And that's so often part of what we have to be on the lookout for, church, is where, where might we be falling prey to disbelief or false belief? It's easy to hide those, not as disobedience, but just as questions or uncertainties, but we are confident in what God has given us in his word. When Paul left the Galatians, they believed accurately. Who caused them to disbelieve? Who hindered them from obeying the truth? Who persuaded them away from obeying the truth? Who placed the stumbling block of obedience to the law in front of them? These Judaizers, these people who'd come in to say, look, the law, you have to follow the law before you can follow Christ. Obedience to the old covenant law, they said, was necessary for salvation. They were trying to rob Jesus of his salvific work. But Paul is careful here. Even even what he's saying, even in these few words in verse 7, what does it mean to obey the truth? You've turned from obeying the truth and you've grabbed on to this false teaching. He's saying if you were obeying the truth, you would be following Jesus alone. That's, that's the implication. That's the strong message there. You would be following Jesus alone. Obedience to the truth means believing the true gospel. Let me tell you the good news of the true gospel. Can I, can I tell you the good news? If you're here and you're Christian, you're like, I'm going to zone out during the gospel while Mark's talking about it. Don't. That to me, this is, this is the pinnacle of every sermon that I get to preach to you, is that we get to talk through the gospel every Sunday. I hope that every day of the week you're thinking through the gospel. I guarantee you, I get to guarantee you that if you're here on Sunday, you're going to hear it <laughs> at least one day of the week. Christian, you need the gospel. We need to be obedient to this truth, that our God is perfect. That he is absolutely righteous and holy. He is different from his Creation who has chosen sin. He is righteous. And he created us to be with him. What a good God who created us to know and enjoy him. The only thing truly worth knowing and loving and enjoying. He created us to be with him. But we in our humanity, in our flesh, we see Eve being the first case of being tempted and choosing her own way. And then all of her descendants from Adam and Eve down have been born into that sin. And even had you not been born into that sin, each of us has chosen that sin. We've each rejected God. 
Each one of us has said, God, I would rather do what I want. That's the message of sin. God, I would rather be in charge of my life. I would rather be God. So God, being good like he was in numbers, he created, he gave a consequence. He said, this will be the consequence. And now there's sin and death. There's chaos and destruction because of what we have done. And the death of eternity apart from God. The truth that there is a heaven and a hell is an essential part of the gospel. That there is a consequence to our sin. And there is a beauty of being with God forever. There is a hope that we have. So God didn't leave us cursed for death and eternity apart from him in hell. He came for us while we were still sinners at just the right time. And he laid his life down. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, came for us to take our sins, both inherited and chosen, every sin. He took on himself for you so that you could be with him, so that he could be your God, so that you could be his people. And he said, repent and believe. What must you do to be saved? Repent and believe. Turn from the other gods. You cannot have two gods. Turn from the other gods. Repent. That's what repentance means. Turn to to God and believe that all of that happens through faith, that God in his goodness has revealed his gospel to us, his goodness to us, By faith we believe. We receive what he has done and you can be saved. And you can be certain of that eternity with him. He died on the cross to take that sin and he rose again. He defeated death. That's how we're confident in our eternity is that death has been defeated. I have a a four-year-old and I don't remember how it came up yesterday. I sent my notes. I don't remember how it came up yesterday. Oh, we were driving through a cemetery. We drove through a cemetery. My four-year-old was asking questions like, will we have, will this happen? Will we have a, a tombstone? I was like, we will, bud. All of us will die. And he, his lips started to quiver and he said, I don't want to die, Dad. And I was like, bud, we don't have anything to worry about. Death is not something we have to be afraid of because we know how much Jesus loves us. And because we love Jesus, we know we get to be with him forever. He's like, how does a four-year-old grasp that concept? You know, you kind of change the topic. You're reassured, you kind of change the topic, you keep going. But what a good reminder for us, church, that we get to enjoy Jesus forever. That's the good news. That Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves so that we could enjoy him. So that we could be zealous for his glory. That we wouldn't be caught up in these lesser things. Look at verse 8. This persuasion, Paul says, God says, is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Paul draws our attention to others here. I hesitate saying that. He draws our attention to others. Paul continually draws our attention to Christ. But here he also does point us to how we relate to others. You cannot, I cannot, we cannot live out our faith alone. It is impossible to be obedient and try to live out your faith alone. It's impossible. Christianity isn't a solo mission. It's done in community. It's why we emphasize life groups and D groups so highly here at Provision Church. We want you to be involved in in real community where you know each other and love each other and are there for each other and care for each other and encourage each other and call each other out. The Christian life is done in community. And I think as a new year begins, it's a wonderful time to commit to a life group. Why not? Why not try to plug in and grab a life group where you will be brothers and sisters with fellow believers? 
It's also this idea that the Christian life is done in community is also why we emphasize hospitality. That we hope that we're sharing life together. I think hospitality is essentially sharing what God has given you in your time and your resources and yourself with others. Opening up yourself and your things to others and letting others open up themselves and their things to you. It's all a part of what hospitality is. And when we do life, when we have a life that we're following Christ and we're, we're doing that together, we're following after Christ together then hospitality comes naturally. We want to be generous with our things. We want to be generous with our time. We want to know each other intimately. With things like life groups where you're regularly meeting together and with things like hospitality where you're sharing yourself with others, it's how you impact others. It's how others impact you or invest in you. But the question here and what Paul's raising in verses 8 through 10 is, Who is impacting you? Who are you allowing to have positions of influence in your life? While we should be doing that in community together, we need to be careful of the community that we keep. Understand this, then, that bad company corrupts good theology. It's a key message here from verses 8 through 10. Bad company corrupts good theology. The persuasion away from the truth, verse 8, the persuasion away from the truth is not from Christ. Those who have held sway over the Galatians were not from Christ. They were not, that message was not of God. God will never disagree with himself. He will never allow glory to go to someone else. So who is this persuasion? Who is this message from? It's from the enemy. It's false teaching, and it's not just a small mistake. It's a big deal. It's, it's not from God. So we need to be careful not to entertain false teachers. Now, most of the time, we're not seeing false teachers come through our life groups or in times of hospitality. And I, I'm, I'm praising God. That's because so many of you have adopted biblical views. You look, you look at the Scripture as God's word. When we come together and say this is the infallible, sufficient, inerrant word of God, it creates a lot of unity that wouldn't happen otherwise. It creates a lot of consistency in following after God in true teaching and true gospel that wouldn't happen otherwise. But I could very easily find you churches that are in community and in the community they are teaching each other false teachings. They are elevating wrong gospels. They are corrupting what is the true gospel. So I'm thankful, church, that you guys elevate what is Scripture, what is the Word. And so maybe the greatest threat here is from churches that amplify their message in ways that are available to you. Right? We need to be careful not to entertain false teachers from, from any avenue. Verse 9 is a callback from Jesus' ministry as you continue to look at verses 8, 9, and 10. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, this bad company. Matthew 16, Jesus said to them, watch and beware. He's talking to his disciples. Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And in that story, the disciples are like, wait, who's got bread? (laughs) This is like, oh, come on, guys. No, look, if you hang out with these guys, if you let them instruct your thinking, if you let them instruct your theology, it's not going to turn out well for you. It doesn't take much false teaching for it to spread. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. If you're not a baker, I guess that's who makes bread. I'm not. That may be unfamiliar to you, but it's just what happens. Leaven just helps the bread rise. Okay. It's the same thing Paul said in 1 Corinthians. He said it differently. In 1 Corinthians 15.33, he said, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. It's one of my favorite verses. I used to teach high school, and I had that verse posted in my classroom. (laughs) In middle school and high school, is there a better verse for a student to latch on to as they're following after Christ? Bad company ruins good morals. Bad company corrupts good character. We become like the people we surround ourselves with. We become like the people we follow. We become like the people we give authority to in our lives. And so many times we give authority to the people that surround us in our workplaces, in our schools, 
in our life groups. That's why it's important to make sure you're surrounding yourself with good people. But who are you listening to? Who are you giving your authority and attention to? Paul says it ruins good morals, and morals come from theology. So I believe we're really safe to say that bad company corrupts good theology. And you might be thinking, well, Mark, you say bad company corrupts good theology, but I'm safe. I'm not a theologian, so we're all good. And I think it's R.C. Sproul that says everyone's a theologian. And that's true. You just don't get a choice in the matter. Everyone, you're a theologian, whether you want to be or not. Really, all theology is is what you believe about God what you believe about yourself and about God. So you have a belief on that. What do you believe? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about yourself? Those are theological questions, and you have to have an answer for them. And how you answer those questions are important for how you will spend eternity. So who, who are you entrusting with influencing your theology? Well, if you're sitting here, you're entrusting me, at least at this point. And I want to say that I hope that's safe because I'm not up here trying to give you Mark's best practices for how to live your life. What we believe is that we want to follow Christ well. And that comes from here. So we keep elevating the authority of Scripture. We keep saying we're submitting to Scripture. What does Scripture say? That's what we do together. That's whether I'm preaching, we're very intentional about me not being the only one who preaches here because it's not all about me. It's all about the Word of Christ. It's all about the Word of God. So we keep elevating this. We keep elevating God's Word over and over. Be careful. Be careful of the theological company you keep. Who are you reading? Who are you listening to? Who are you allowing to pour into you? I've always said that I really enjoy reading books because if someone told me that I could spend 12 hours with John MacArthur, I would say, take me there. I'd love to do it. Give give me that time. He'd meet with me an hour a week for 12 weeks. I would do it. Well, he wrote a book so that I can like hang out with him and hear his thoughts for an hour a week for 12 weeks. That's kind of, that's that's what we talk about really in God's word. It's even better and deeper that we spend time with God in his word, but we get that investment. So as you're reading books, someone is investing in you, their thoughts and their beliefs. They're, they're trying to give you what they believe. That's true of the sermons you listen to and the podcast you listen to and the music you listen to. So who are you letting pour into you? Look at verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever it is, whoever he is. When you take hold of the truth, when you are obedient to the truth, that is because of God's goodness. Paul puts his confidence in the Lord for their right belief. He also puts his confidence in the Lord for punishing those who are in error. That's what, it's not because Mark's up here holding the Bible that you're following after me, or that you're believing what is right. I, I hope that it's really not because I've been so eloquent that I've convinced you to believe what is right. I hope it's because the Holy Spirit has taken hold of you. I hope it's because... God, God is giving you the discernment to know what is true and what is false. That's, that's my great hope for you. If I've convinced you, then someone else will convince you better. But if the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you and brings you to the truth, then no teaching of man apart from him will draw you away from it. He won't draw you away from himself. Paul says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. His hope is not in his eloquence of this letter in Galatians His hope is in Christ for bringing his people to himself. And he knows that Christ is going to do the punishment for those who are bearing false witness, those who are teaching what is wrong. There is an eternal penalty for those troubling those who are obeying the truth. An eternal penalty for false teaching. James 3 teaches that. James 3, 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Be careful. So you might hear people who are not financial, trying to give financial advice, saying this is not financial advice because they don't want a lawsuit on their hands. I mean, how much more careful should we be in trying to teach and lead people towards Christ? We should give them God's word, <laughs> and we should raise up God's word. 
and say, this is the way. This is how we follow after Christ. It's his word. You don't have to worry about lawsuits. You just keep preaching God's word. So watch your theology closely. Don't just go to someone who can make you feel encouraged and uplifted. On the other end of that, don't just go to someone who always makes you feel badly. And the Bible should be a sword that cuts us. But the Bible should also be like a balm that heals us. We need, we need the full counsel of God's word to both cut deeply and expose sin and drive us back to God and give us zeal for his glory. But we also need to be in the midst of his glory. To be in his presence. To enjoy his company. As we think about the false teachers here, as we think about who that could be and who you're giving your time to, I want to quickly give you a couple of red flags. Red flags for if you're listening to pastors or if you're listening to podcasts, I mean, like, I'm not going to follow along with you in the car and, like, slap podcasts out of your hand. Like, that's the wrong one. Don't do that. But I want to give you a couple of, of red flags that you should think about as you're choosing who to give influence to because it's just so easy to access teaching, biblical teaching, both the great and the heretical. So let me give you a couple of red flags. A pastor who merely references the word but doesn't saturate the sermon in the Bible. That's a red flag. Like if, if there's like a passage at the beginning and then they just give you the rest as their perspective, th- that's a red flag. Some, you'll hear some preachers who won't touch the Bible the whole time. That's maybe more than a red flag. A pastor who never talks about the seriousness of your sin is a red flag. A pastor who makes everything about politics is a red flag. A pastor who is a woman is a red flag. Now, be careful. Women can be powerful teachers of the word, but biblically they aren't supposed to be in a position of authority over men, like a pastor position. A pastor who will not claim that Jesus is the only way to salvation is a red flag. You never hear him say Jesus is the only way. The exclusivity of Christ. A pastor who spends more time talking about miracles of healing than the miracle of salvation. That's a red flag. A pastor who spends more time talking about your well-being than about Jesus and his glory. That's a red flag. God knows that we will face wrong teaching. There's a message that is pleasing to the ear. In Isaiah, he was prophesying to the Israelites. And this is what he said in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 9. He said, for they are a rebellious people. Talking about God's people here. I mean, this, is, this is God's people, the Israelites. They are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. I love this language. I love how accurately this captures our moment. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. God knew his people are going to turn from the truth. They're going to want smooth talk. They're going to want illusions. They're going to turn aside Paul says that such persons who do this don't serve our Lord Christ, but they serve their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. I hope some of what we're doing today is pulling you out of naivety. Naivety. I hope that's what I'm doing daily as I'm in my word, is pulling myself out of how naive I am. That's why it's so important for daily we're encountering God in his word while we're going to him in prayer, asking for wisdom and discernment. Because it's the hearts of naive who are easily moved by smooth talk and flattery. People have always gone into churches for greedy gain. We see that in Titus. Let's continue on. Let's look at verse 11. 
Verse 11, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, this is Paul saying, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? It's possible that some were accusing Paul of that. Like, Paul, Paul's with us. Paul still preaches circumcision too, so don't, don't be worried. You should do this too, Galatians. He's saying, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Like, I'm not doing that. I'm not preaching circumcision. In that case, if I was still preaching circumcision, in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. So here is the offense. The cross is offensive. The offense of the cross is that Jesus saves. It's that simple. I mean, that's the offense of the cross, is that Jesus saves. If Paul wasn't preaching circumcision. That would have been easy. What's not easy is the truth that you are incapable of saving yourself. The message of circumcision is here. You, you have a part to play. You are capable of aiding your salvation I was saying, no, that's, that's not it. You're weaker than you could imagine. You're more inept and unable than you give yourself credit for. You need the full power and weight of Christ in your life to be saved. And anything you contribute, it's just your sin. Receive what Christ has done in faith. I love that the offense of the cross is really how great and glorious Jesus is. The offense of the cross is a reminder that in our humanity, we are not great and glorious. That we should point our eyes to the one who is great and glorious. That Jesus isn't some passive, helpless carpenter. It's easy maybe sometimes to confuse weakness for passivity or helplessness. But while Jesus was weak for a time, while he did come in humility to serve, our Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, is a mighty warrior. He is God himself. He is infinitely able and strong. He holds all things together. If you want to remove the offense of the gospel, preach about a Jesus who needs your help to be saved. Preach about a Jesus who won't help you until you help yourself. Preach about a Jesus who is small and unable to save without your contribution. No, Jesus is too great for that. Jesus is too powerful for that. He doesn't bid you to come and be strong. He calls for you to come and die. He comes you, bids you to come and be weak so that he will be strong through you, so that you can have life in him. Jesus doesn't need us, but he loves us. Man. Jesus loves us. Behind all of the offensive exterior of God's greatness is this beautiful diamond of truth. Is that all of, all of that is a God who is worthy. God's exclusivity and his zealousness for his glory isn't a reason to reject God. It's a reason to enjoy him. Because in all of his greatness, in all of his exclusivity, in all of his power, he chose to make himself low and to be near to his people and to love you. These false teachers were taking the strength out of the gospel. They were preaching a gospel without power, a weak, emasculated gospel. So in verse 11... <laughs> Paul says it would be better for them to emasculate themselves, these false teachers, than emasculate the gospel. Better to harm themselves and their reputation than preaching a false gospel. It reminds me of when Jesus said it would be better for someone to tie a millstone around their neck and jump into a lake than to lead a child away from Christ. Look, your theology is important because the truth of the gospel is worth the perseverance and the persecution. Because you will either be leading someone towards obedience to the truth or away. You can't be idle. You can't sit on a fence. 
If you call yourself a Christian, you will either be drawing people towards Christ or pushing them away. You don't get to be passive in this race. You will run. How will you run? How are you running the race? Christian, how are you running the race? Are you running well or are you being hindered from obedience? If you're here and you're not a Christian, and you're thinking, I, I need to get in on that race. I want to know this Savior who is infinitely powerful and still loves me intimately. I'd love, I would love, love, love to talk about it. You would make my day to come and talk about it. It would not be a hindrance for me. It would not be a hard thing for me. But I can also tell you this. Everyone in this room who is a Christian would love to talk to you about it. So nudge your neighbor. Nudge your mom and dad or your friend. Say, I want to know more about how to follow Jesus. I want to know more about how to be his child. If you are a Christian and you feel like, I've been not really running. Someone's dra- God is dragging me along. <laughs> What's keeping you today from reveling in the joy of Christ? That you get your feet moving a little bit today, that you get out of a rut of being dragged along and then you get to run in the race to follow after Christ. That you get to enjoy his power and his glory, that you might experience a zeal for God's glory. I hope that for you. I pray that for you, church, that you would be zealous for God's glory. I believe as we're zealous for God's glory that we'll read the Bible with joy, that we'll pray like crazy, that we'll be hospitable towards others, that we'll embrace even indifferences each other. I want to pray with you. I want to pray that you might respond, that you would be a doer of the word and not just a hearer. Would you pray with me for that as well? God, we love you. We thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that you have loved us perfectly, that we get to know and enjoy you because you have designed us that way, because you've made it possible, because there was a brutal cross, and now there's an empty grave. God, we are certain of your kindness towards us. We are certain of the veracity of the gospel. We are certain of a hope with you forever, of a life with you forever. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We pray that today as we continue singing that you would be blessed and enjoy our praises to you, that our praises would be praises drawn from a joy in you drawn from a wonder and reverence for you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.